Well, given that it was a Sunday where we had some really special things happening, I thought we could take a break from the series that we're in for Lent called Groundwork for the Soul. We'll be picking up that series again next week. But I thought in light of this special Sunday where we're celebrating and receiving new members, ordaining and installing new elders, that this is a big day for us as a church. So maybe we can hit the pause button and think about these two things, membership and leadership in the church. And we're going into 1 Peter. We spent some time in there in our Gospel Rhythms series, but we're going to be looking at these two passages from the letter, the first letter of Peter. These two things, membership or community and leadership, are two areas where Christianity might just be the most countercultural to trends happening in our culture, but I think it also can be the most compelling. In a culture where, in large part, the culture is wondering is the church even relevant? Is the church beneficial to society? Over the last couple weeks, I've been in conversation with a number of you, and I was listening to a podcast um, from the Barna Group, Barna Research Group. They do research, regular research projects on attitudes towards Christianity. And what they've noticed is that over the past few decades that the impression or um, the stance that the church has with regard to its place in culture, attitudes have been shifting and changing. So maybe 50 years ago, people would say, if they're not a part of the church, that they're just, uh, they have a friendly attitude towards the church, but it's not for them. Maybe 25 years ago, people would say they're not interested or indifferent towards the church. But now things have changed so that people outside of the church wonder if the church is relevant anymore. And even more than that, there's a growing sentiment and perspective that people of faith might just be extreme that they're a part of the problems that are happening in our modern world. And so these two areas, membership in the church or community in the church and leadership in the church, I believe are two areas that if we get wrong, will only further marginalize us and distance us from our neighbors. But I, at the same time, I believe these two areas, membership or community and leadership in the church, are two areas, if we get right, will be two of the things that are most interesting, compelling, and winsome about Christianity in our culture. Now, these two things, community or membership in communities and leadership, they're a part of any culture, and they're handled differently depending on the culture you're a part of. In our culture, we have some serious issues and challenges with regard to both. With community, I think there's a longing for true community. But at the same time, there's a restraint. There's a caution. We have the challenges of individualism. We like to be rugged individuals. We have the challenges of technology. We all have our own device and our own personal world in that device. And so we're cautious when it comes to community and often self-serving. We're asking, well, what's in it for me if I join this group? What advantage can I get out of it? How will I increase my status or standing by joining this group? Is it worth my time? I'm very busy. And in this community, is it a safe community? 
for me to belong to. And that, that's community. And with leadership, there's a growing distrust and suspicion that we have in our culture with regard to leadership. I know it's been well documented that this is especially true with the millennial generation, that there's a little bit of a distrust for authority and for leadership. We're always wondering, what do you want from me? We're very suspicious of leaders who are all talk, leaders who are controlling, who are arrogant, who are disconnected from regular people. So although we know that leaders are, in some sense, indispensable in any community, any organization, we have this distrust, this suspicion. We have a streak of independence. In the passages we just read, Peter shows us how the gospel brings about a new community, a community that is beautiful and that is attractive because it is marked by grace, and a style of leadership that is marked by humility. This community that is marked by grace, he's saying is something that you won't find anywhere else because in this community, you will encounter what he calls the glory of God. That God's beauty, His goodness, and His truth will be experienced in this type of community. And it's a community where leadership is done like it's done nowhere else. Where humility, humility will be the mark of leadership in this community. So if you are here and you are not sure where you stand with Jesus, you still have serious questions or doubts about Christianity, I hope this is a helpful message for you because in it, the Apostle Peter, who is really the top leader in the church, he sets forward his vision of what membership in the church should look like and what leadership in the church should look like. And to my Christian friends here, we didn't read it, but a few verses in between the two passages we read in 1 Peter 4.17, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, and he says, In 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And so what he's saying is, you're experiencing a lot of opposition because of your faith. You're trying to figure out how how it is that I'm a, a Christian, how to live a Christian life, how to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't understand Jesus and that is resisting Jesus. He says, for now, I want you to set aside the need to judge people who are outside of the Christian faith, because now is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He says, I want you to take a look first at your own community life and the way that you are doing leadership. So we're going to look at these two things together. If you would like to follow along, there's an outline in the bulletin. First, we're going to look at membership, and then we're going to look at leadership. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11 are all about how we go about building a community of grace, building this kind of community that is a reflection of God, of His glory, His truth, His beauty, His goodness to the world. And so a quick disclaimer here, although I'm using the term membership, I mean for it to apply not just to the formal members like we received this Sunday, but to anyone who calls Trinity their home, or if you are a part of another church, wherever you call um, your home and your church home. I want to start by sharing this quote from Christine Pohl. She talks about this mixed 
sense of longing for community and struggle with community that we have. She says in her book, Living into Community, the ways we've been formed by church and culture have not given us the skills or virtues we need to be part of the very communities we long for and try to create. While we might want community, it is often community on our terms, with easy entrances and exits, lots of choice and support, and minimal responsibilities. Mixed together, this is not a promising recipe for strong or lasting communities. I think what she's saying is true in the church or in the culture when it comes to community and building strong communities. What we see here in First Peter 4 is that he's giving us, we could say, a different recipe for building community. How can we be members of a gospel community who are helping to create and build the type of relationships and community that we long to be a part of? So I see within this passage three shifts or three changes we'll have to make in order to build this kind of community. First one, we need to go from consumers to stewards. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it as good stewards of God's varied grace. So membership in the church begins with this conviction that I have been given something, I have been given a gift by God in order that I might give it away to others. It's important to know that the word grace and the word gift are connected in the original language. The word for grace is charis. You may be familiar with that word. And the word for gift is charisma. So charis and charisma, grace and a grace thing, a grace gift. Together we see that this means that God uses people. God uses people to deliver His empowering favor and strength to other people, His grace. One commentator describes this dynamic like this. He says, each Christian has an irreplaceable contribution to whatever church community God has placed them in. An irreplaceable contribution. That word stewardship is also significant. It's an economic term. The Greek for stewardship is oikonomia, where we get the word economy. It's all about economy. A steward manages the resources or the money of the owner in light of his or her interests, purposes, and priorities. And this is significant because we also use economic language when it comes to when we're looking for a church community to be a part of. We call it church shopping. And you may have used that term, and that's okay. I'm not going to bash you if you did, but words matter. When we describe our connection to a church using the language of a consumer, it affects and it shapes us. It affects how we see our place in the church. A shopper says, how can I find a church that meets all my needs? Well, a steward says, how can I find a church where I can use my gifts to help build the community and fulfill the mission of this church? And there's a big difference between those two perspectives. This consumer mentality is very pervasive in our culture. We turn everything into a commodity and into kind of a shopping transaction. And in the church, Peter is saying, we need to draw this boundary line 
around consumerism, to say consumerism isn't a part of how we do community here in the church. There's a very different economy at work, not an economy of consumerism, but an economy of stewardship. Peter says this grace that we are to steward, he calls it God's varied grace. The word means multifaceted or diverse. And so he's saying that everybody's contribution is needed, no matter what it is. That everybody is valued within the church and nobody is unimportant. The more diverse a community is, the more healthy the community will be. And in life in the church, we tend to congregate with other like-minded people and people who are like us. The more that we just restrict ourselves to people who are just like us or people who have the gifts that we do, the less healthy we will be as a church, Peter is saying. And we will weaken our ministry and mission if we are not intentionally diverse in seeking the full expression of the gifts that God has given to a church. So that's the first shift from consumers to stewards. The second is from competitors and comparers to servants. Membership in the church means we are to use our gifts to serve one another. So from a very early age in our culture, in many cultures, we're taught to compete. We're taught to compare in the communities we're a part of. At school, we have grades. And we get our grade on our test and we look over at our neighbors and say, well, what did they get? I wonder if I did better than them. When we play sports or we're involved in the arts, we're competing for playing time, for a position, or for the first chair in the orchestra, wherever it might be. In college, we need to get a competitive advantage comparative to our peers in our grades, in our activities, in building our resumes. In the marketplace, we're looking for the edge, for recognition, to be promoted over our peers. And in social groups, we're often comparing what people have, what they do. In social media, we're comparing how cool the food we eat is compared to the other people who post their food on Facebook. So we're always competing and comparing. So we're taught to use our gifts to compete, to use our gifts to compare, to gain an advantage over others or to win. But competition and comparison in community is really the antithesis of grace. Grace says we are all equally broken, we are all equally needy. And so there are no winners and losers. There are just needy people in need of grace. So competition and comparison, it breaks down relationships. It's about getting ahead. It's about winning. But servants say, I'm not here in this community to find a way to win. I'm here to lose so that others can win. If you think about it like this, to really serve another person is always to experience a loss in some way. When you serve somebody, you lose energy, you lose time, you lose some of your resources, some of your peace, some of your comfort. But in those things that you lose, you gain relationship and you gain community. When someone goes out of their way to serve you, to sacrifice for you, it creates a bond that is not easily broken. And these kinds of bonds, Peter is saying, should be everywhere in the church between us as we're serving one another. 
that we are here to say, I'm here to help you to win, even if it comes at my expense. And in doing so, we model the gospel where Jesus lost everything so that we would win everything in him. Unfortunately, the reality is we have to confess, and I confess as a pastor, that competition and comparison happens between churches and within the church. And this is something Peter is saying we need to repent of. Because the church is meant to be a breath of fresh air. This is not a place where you have to compete. This is not a place where you have to compare. We're not broken by the disunity and the conflict that comes from that, competing agendas and complaining and the pressure of getting ahead. We are here to serve one another. That's the second shift. Third shift, the third part of the recipe. We go from concealers to sharers. What do I mean by that? Many of us in this room are doers, we're achievers, we're activists. So when I say we need to steward, we need to serve others, many of you are motivated by that and that's a good thing. You say, I can gain energy from that, being a part of something meaning, meaningful, using my gifts to serve others. And we find a degree of comfort in being in a position of giving to others because we think, many of us, well, yeah, I do have a lot to give. That's true. But when it comes to being in a position of receiving, we are far less comfortable. I want to share just a, a picture or an illustration. If you can imagine everybody in a community, we have two pitchers in our hands, two pitchers of liquid or water. One is our giving pitcher and one is our receiving pitcher. And many of us are comfortable with the giving pitcher. We say, I love to give. I love to give. It makes me feel significant. It gives me energy, so I want to give to you, I want to give to you. But a lot of us are very uncomfortable with that receiving picture. So we kind of walk around like this, concealing. Yeah, we're a quarter full. Yeah, we're a half full. We're struggling, we have needs. We're confused and doubting about things in our life. But we don't let anybody pour grace into that picture because we've got it covered up. None of the grace that we need from God that He has designed to give to us through other people can get in unless we stop concealing the need. The word that Peter uses here for the varied and manifold grace of God is used one other time in the letter in 1 Peter 1.6. He says there's manifold grace in the church. In 1 Peter 1.6, he says you're going to experience various trials and suffering. Same word. And I think we're meant to see a connection. This is how God's varied grace meets us in our various trials. It happens in a community of grace. When we're vulnerable enough to share that we're needy and that we're broken and we need grace from other people. God's varied grace meeting us in our various trials and suffering. That's membership. Now I want to transition to the next passage and talk about leadership. Peter, at the end of that passage in 1 Peter 4, as he's describing this community, he breaks out in this doxology. He says, to God be the glory forever and ever, to Him be the glory and the dominion. 
He has to pause and say, as he's picturing this community, wow, if this community can truly exist, God would be known, God would be glorified, God would be experienced in the world. Then he moves on. Chapter 5, leadership in the church. Now I'm speaking in some ways, in a special way to our team of elders in the church, to, to Darian and Eddie and to Steve, but to all of us, anyone who is and will be in a position of influence and leadership. The Apostle Peter is drawing on two things here as he talks about leadership in the church. One, I think he's thinking back to his own call to leadership by Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus personally meets with Peter to call him into leadership. And three times he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Matching Peter's threefold denial. He's restoring him not only to himself, but into leadership. He says, tend my flock, feed my lambs. He's using the metaphor of a shepherd. So Peter's, I think, thinking about his own call into leadership, but he's also thinking about the shepherd leadership model of Jesus himself. He calls Jesus the chief shepherd. There's a question that I was asked many times before I was in the role of a lead pastor or a senior pastor. I was an associate and assistant pastor. And people would ask me, when are you going to get your own church? And I have to say, I always hated that question. I say, I'm never going to get my own church because there is no church that would ever be mine or anyone else's because every church is Jesus's. And that's what Peter is saying here. Leadership in the church must always recognize that and must always mirror and follow the leadership of Jesus. Not whatever the dominant mold or model of the culture is when it comes to how leadership should be done. So in any culture, gospel leadership will always be countercultural. And I want to look at three ways in which we see that here in this passage. First, the team. If anyone had a right to be at the top of the organizational chart in the church, it was the person who wrote these words, Peter. He was the one whom Jesus said, I, Peter, will build my church upon you. I even give you a special name. Your name is Peter. He was the leader of the 12 disciples in the early church. He was the clear leader of the early church. But Peter does not pull rank here. Instead, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. There's no clearer or stronger way that Peter could show us that leadership in the church is meant to be team leadership. He's saying, I am not even considering myself above you. I am with you. We're on this team together. And so Peter is setting the precedent for the radical nature of gospel leadership. It's not about building ourselves up in order to get to the top. It's about building a team. It's the team. Secondly, what's the job description of a leader in the church. You may have noticed that three words are used, all for the same role. Elder, overseer, and shepherd. Really, those are three different ways of looking at the same leadership role. Elder, that's more focused on the maturity and the character of the leader. The overseer, the role, what the leader does. And the shepherd, I think, is talking about the heart of the leadership, how they go about the task of leading. That's the title. What does Peter say about the job? His emphasis here 
is in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock. And then he goes and he, he describes three motivations that should not characterize leadership in the church and contrast those to three things that should characterize the heart and the manner of a leader in the church. I think these are significant because if you look at what he says, not, 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 not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but as examples to the flock, these three things are three of the top reasons, as I've talked with people, as I've heard the stories that people have had with the church of why people have been hurt by the church, disappointed by church leadership, why people have checked out of church because of these dynamics happening at the leadership level in churches they've been a part of. They've seen leadership that's been carried out, carried out as a duty or a burden. They've seen leaders who seem to be in it for their own financial gain or their own prestige for shameful gain. Or leaders who are domineering, who are overbearing, and who hurt people in the process. Peter says this should not be in the church. Instead, leaders should be willing, eager examples. I think Peter is probably thinking back to a leadership lesson that he received from Jesus in Mark chapter 10. You can turn there if you'd like. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus uses the same terminology that Peter uses here. As Peter says, you should never be domineering, you should never lord it over people, but you should be an example to the flock. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, the disciples were arguing, who's the top? Who's the leader? Peter was not a part of this conversation directly. He was overhearing James and John, the other three disciples who were closest to Jesus, the other three top leaders, and they said, Jesus, we want to have the top two positions in your kingdom. And here's what Jesus said to James and John. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, same word that Peter uses, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter said this same pattern, the pattern of Jesus, is the pattern that's played out in the leadership of the church. In 5 verse 1, he says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory to be revealed. And there he's setting the framework for what it means to be an example as a leader in the church. He is saying the leader is the first one to engage in the people's trials and suffering. The leader is the first one to take the hit. The leader is the first one to lead. They were experiencing great persecution, and there was great cost for this community for owning the name of Jesus publicly. Peter says the, lead, the leader is the one who's out in front of that. That is what it means to be an example to the flock. He says, leaders will receive an unfading crown. 
The crown of glory leaders seek is not from the people of the church. It's not from the recognition from the eyes of the world, not to be crowned a success in the eyes of other people, but from Jesus, the chief shepherd. Leaders don't look for the fading glory of men or measure success by the metrics of the world, but by faithfully and humbly laying down their lives for the flock. So that might point other people to the chief shepherd. The title, the job description, and lastly, the uniform. When you see somebody in uniform, often you can tell their status. Maybe you see somebody in their scrubs and you say, well, that's, a, that's probably a physician. Or you see uh, somebody in the military and you can tell on their actual uniform where their rank is. You can tell that somebody's a Wall Street worker if they're in their power suit or something like that. So uniforms often communicate status and position. If you go to a nice restaurant, you can tell maybe who the employees are and what their role is by what they're wearing. The chef, he has his chef hat on. The host or the hostess is wearing something nice, some nice attire. You probably can pick out the owner if they're walking around and talking to people, and they're probably dressed in pretty formal clothing. Then you probably can see who the people are who are there to clean the tables and to clean the dishes in the back. Their clothes are pretty dirty and soiled. They're not dressed as nicely as the host or the owner, and they don't have a chef hat on. Peter says, you should be able to tell who the leaders of the church are by the uniform that they're wearing. At the end of this section in verse 4 and 5, he says, their clothes should be the clothes of humility. They should have the dirtiest clothes. They should have the aprons with the junk on them. In verse 5, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One commentator said this verb, clothe, appears to derive from a word that probably identified a garment or an apron of a slave tied over other garments in order to perform certain menial tasks. So leaders in the church are called to always wear the uniform of humility with an awareness of their own need, of their own weaknesses, of their own frailty, of their own need for a Savior. Leaders know that it's possible, as First Peter says here, that God could actually be opposed to a church. And Peter says God is opposed to the proud, the proud church or the proud leader. If we become a community of ungrace or of pride, Peter says God is opposed to that. Only a humble person in a community can God give grace to and through. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness is worse than my own. Peter says that is the clothing we all should wear. And if we wear that, those clothes as members of the church, as leaders of the church, then we can expect an outpouring of grace to happen. So both membership and leadership in the church 
we realize it's not about us. That all our gifts, all our service, all our leadership is meant to point to the chief shepherd. And as Peter says in chapter 2, of this same letter, Jesus himself, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So in all of our wounds, in all of our straying, a church marked by humility knows that what we all need whenever we gather together here on Sundays, whenever we meet each other in other places, we need to be pointed to the chief shepherd, the one who gives us life, the one who gives us healing, the one to whom we always return to for grace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. Amazing as it is, you are a God who has clothed himself in humility, coming to our broken and sinful world as one of us, humbling yourself to live in in a world of suffering and pain and brokenness, and even more, humbling yourself to die, shameful and painful death on the cross in our place. I pray, in light of your great humility, the chief shepherd, the one who has come, who knows us by name, the one who has laid down his life for us, that that would free us to be a church that is full of grace, that is marked by humility, that you would pour out your your grace through the gifts of this body, And that, Lord, above all other things, would you give the leaders of this church great humility that we would continually be returning over and over again to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Lord, pour out your grace. Make this a community of grace that gives you glory, that your goodness and that your beauty might be known here amongst us and by any who come into contact with us. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen.